A while back, I was reading the fine print of a contract. I don't remember what the contract was, whether it was life insurance, car insurance, or a phone. I'm not sure. But it listed a long line of things that were covered and things that weren't covered. One of the things that wasn't covered is acts of God. Now, it's vague enough that one could call just about anything they don't want to cover with insurance an act of God. So I was curious and decided, what is the legal definition of an act of God? And so I looked it up, and the answer, the definition is a natural disaster outside of human control, such as an earthquake or a tsunami, for which no person can be held responsible. And as I was looking up this information, I came across an interesting uh, tidbit of information about Nebraska. In 2007, one of our own state legislators decided they would take God to court and filed a lawsuit against God. Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit against God, ordering him to cease certain harmful activities and the making of terroristic threats of grave harm to innumerable persons, including constituents of plaintiff, who plaintiff has the duty to represent. Needless to say, the lawsuit didn't make it very far, and supposedly he was just trying to make a statement about the judicial system. I don't know, that was before my time. But nonetheless, it's interesting that he decided to take God to court. The thought is interesting, suing God for terroristic threats. What kind of terroristic threats has God given us that we would have to be afraid of? I suppose some might view hell as a terroristic threat. The idea that if you don't follow me, if you don't believe in me or trust in me, I'll send you to hell. They think God says, and while it's true, there is a lake of fire and brimstone. It was never meant to be for people. It was not created for people to go to. It was a place that was designed only for the devil and his angels. And God doesn't desire to send anyone to hell. And as we studied in Sunday school this morning, it's not his will for people to perish, but he desires for every single person to be saved, every single one of us. That's his desire, that we all be saved. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He tells us in Ezekiel. And as you read scripture, you see the extent to which God went in order to save us from this place that he never intended for any one of us to go to in the first place. As we read scripture, we read about the acts that God has done to save us. And those are the acts that we're going to focus on this morning. Acts of God, not terroristic threats, not something that can't be explained away by forces of nature, but an act that God has done to save us. So as we read scripture, we see who God is. And we see what he has done to save us. And this morning we're going to look at these acts recorded in Isaiah. Let's look and see what God has done. I encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with me as I read Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7 through 10. And please stand out of respect for God's word. It's Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7 through 10. Reading in Jesus' name. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, 
but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Father God, these are your words. Your word is true. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. Open up our hearts to receive the message that you have for us. Open up our eyes, Lord, to see the acts that you have done in order to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first act of God that we see in our text here is discipline. Discipline isn't fun. Discipline isn't enjoyable for anyone, not for the person who is disciplining and not for the person who is being disciplined. But discipline is necessary. Now, Evan is getting tall enough now to reach to the top of the stove, and he's curious. He always wants to see what we're doing. So when we're in the kitchen cooking, here comes Evan with his little hands trying to get up on top of the stove. And we keep telling him, Evan, don't touch the stove. It's hot. And we keep telling him this thing, but it doesn't stop. He keeps trying to reach up. So sometimes we need to act to prevent him from burning himself. Whether that's pulling him away or whether that's swatting his hand. Does that make us bad parents for inflicting a little bit of pain or for keeping Evan from doing what he just is dying to do? I think we would all agree it's the loving thing to do, to keep him from burning himself on the stove. It's discipline. It's necessary. And Lord willing, hopefully he doesn't ever burn his hands on the stove, and hopefully none of you burn your hands on the stove either. But it's something that we have to do with Evan to teach him, to prevent him from further harm. And in our text this morning, we see an act of discipline that God is doing on his people. It's not because he doesn't like them, it's not because he doesn't love them, but he is slapping their hands, preventing them from further harm. It's an act of discipline that God does. In verse 7, God says to his people, For a brief moment I forsook you. And in verse 8, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. What act is God talking about? As we look at the context of Isaiah and what's going on in world history at this time, God's people were about to be deported. Not because they didn't have their green cards, but because they weren't obeying God's laws. And God had made them his people. God had made a covenant with his people as he has taken them out of Egypt. And when he first made them his people, he has given them instructions. God told his people on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession." Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a holy people, a kingdom of priests. God had brought his people from Egypt, and he has promised to protect them. He has promised to watch over them and to bless them and to give them a land. And he's established his covenant with them. And they consented to being his people, saying, Yes, Lord, we agree, we will do these things that you have told us. And in Exodus 20, God gives the Israelites his terms of his covenant, the very first one. You shall not have any other gods before me. They would have a hard time with this. When the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land, God told them, remove all pagan influences from the land. Get them out of here so that you do not follow in their footsteps, so that you are not led astray. And God's people didn't listen. And just as God said would happen, they would be led astray 
they were led astray. And God had sent prophet after prophet to warn them of their wicked ways, to remind them where you are headed is not a good place. Quite literally, you are on a highway to hell. And God did not want his people to do that. So it was a loving thing for God to just sit back and watch his people travel on this highway? Or is a loving thing of God to intercede for them and to stop them and to bring discipline, to reveal to them that this is not the way that I have designed life to be for you. This is not the way that you are going to find hope, health, happiness, and love. This is not the way you are supposed to live. And so God intervenes and he acts. And what does he do? For a brief moment, he forsakes them and he hides his face from them. God is going to hide his face from them. This isn't a divine game of peekaboo that God has with his people, but he is disciplining them, turning away from his people, turning away his gracious look, this look that provides for his people, this look that protects them, this look that watches over them. They had benefited so much from God's eyes before being on them, but God would turn his face away, and he did. Not only does he turn his face away, but he, turn, he sends in another nation to uproot the Israelites from their land, to take them from the land that God had promised them, to teach them the lesson, you shall not serve any other gods but me alone. They'd be taken into exile, and all the while God is trying to get their attention, calling them back to himself, saying, this is discipline, it's not going to last forever, but come back to me. Isaiah is writing this, before the exile happens. He's writing this before the event would take place. For those who would hear and remember his message, they would be comforted that this isn't going to last forever. God says, briefly, I forsake you. For a moment, I turned my back on you. They wouldn't stay in exile. God wasn't done acting for his people, but he would bring them back. And there is much more to be done, more than just bringing his people back to their land. But for a brief moment, He had turned away, but now he is turning back. And what should the people expect? Would their time in exile be enough to balance the scales in their favor? Would it pay for all of the times that they had disobeyed God? Would their punishment in exile be enough that God would finally smile on them again? Would God even take them back? We don't have to wonder about these questions because God tells us in his word what we are to expect, what they are to expect. It's right here in our text, in verses 7 and 8. It says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will bring you back. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What should they expect? Compassion. What should they expect? Everlasting loving kindness. And this brings us to the next act of God, his compassion. And when we talk about compassion, we ask ourselves a question, what is compassion? Is compassion just the pulling of your heartstrings, this feeling that you get when you see a commercial of abused animals on TV? That's just empathy. If It's just a feeling. It's not compassion. But compassion by necessity acts. It drives you to action. Compassion acts. It isn't any good for you to say you have compassion when your actions don't back up that compassion. What good does it do for you to have your heart break for someone, but you don't do anything to enter into their pain or anything to help them out? It only makes you calloused. 
It doesn't prove that you have compassion. But here in our text, God says, I will have compassion on you. And that is a hint to us that God is going to act. God is going to act on our behalf. God is going to act for our favor, for our benefit. He sees our pain. He sees what we're going through. And he is going to act. And he tells us how he acts here in this verse. I will gather you with everlasting loving kindness. I will have compassion on you. Here in Isaiah, God is telling his people who are still yet to be disciplined in exile that it will only last for a brief period that he will gather them again. They will be brought back. God's compassion will not fade away, but it will last forever. It's not an act that has just happened in the past that doesn't have any effect on today, but it's something that has happened in the past that affects how we live our lives, even today, even tomorrow and the next day and the next, because God's word says it will last forever and he will have everlasting loving kindness on us. How much greater is this everlasting loving kindness going to be than that brief amount of turmoil when God has turned his back on his people? How much greater is all eternity going to be when we are in heaven with God, experiencing his compassion and his loving kindness than the time, the brief moments that we are disciplined when God says, don't go on that road, it doesn't lead to heaven. Follow me, repent, and come back to me. His loving kindness and compassion moves God to act. And what action does God do? What action does he do that still is effective today? In verse 8, we find a hint towards this act. As Isaiah writes about who God is, he says, The Lord will have compassion. The Lord, your Redeemer. Redeemer is someone who buys back. And as Isaiah identifies the Lord as the one who buys his people back, he's hinting at the fact that God will bring his people back. God would buy his people back. But how would he do this? When would he do this? Historically, yes, he brought his people back into the promised land some 70 years after they went into exile. But what about for us? What about for you and for me? Because God's loving kindness extends forever. So it has to be more than just that. And the answer to that question is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God's compassion is in his son dying on the cross for your sins. The answer to that question is found in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. It might seem like a bit of a jump to go from Isaiah here, Isaiah 54, all the way to John and to Romans. But is it that much of a jump? Open up your Bibles and look at Isaiah 54. And look at the chapter that comes right before Isaiah 54. What is that chapter all about? What is Isaiah 53 all about? If there's a title in there, it might say, The Suffering Servant. It's a passage that we're all familiar with, a passage that we've heard many times, a passage you've heard me talk about over and over again. Isaiah 54 is built off of Isaiah 53. And as these people are about to go into exile, they look back to this promise of the suffering servant who would suffer for them, who would pay the penalty for their iniquities, and know that, will God bring me back after this brief time of exile? The answer is yes, not because I paid for my sins, but because God himself, through his servant, has paid for my sins. Because by his wounds, I am healed. And so it's not that big of a jump 
to jump from here in Isaiah 54 to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. This is the necessary jump. This is the act of compassion that God has given for each one of us that lasts for all eternity. And so when we're tempted, when we feel that God has forsaken us, when we are being disciplined just for a moment, know that it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God doesn't care for you. It's not because God has turned his face from you either. But it's because God loves you. It's because God doesn't want you anymore to run on this highway to hell. And look back to the cross, to where Christ has died for your sins. Look back to the cross where you can know for certain that my God loves me because my God died for me. And his steadfast love endures forever. And he is always with me. The loving kindness of the Lord lasts forever. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. In verse 10, God speaks through Isaiah yet again to confirm his love for his people. To remind them again of his unending compassion. He says, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I used to think that houses were immovable. Now, once they were built, they stayed there until they were torn down or they fell apart. But I found out that it's possible to move complete houses, to pick them up and move them to a different location. It blew my mind. I still don't understand how it works, but I know that it's happened because I've heard a few different people have said that. But even though houses can be moved, God's loving kindness will not be moved. In our text here, he talks about something that is even more immovable than a house. It says the mountains and the hills. And every time that I go into the mountains, I'm amazed yet again at how big they are, how broad, how tall, how massive, how permanent these structures are. No matter how many times people have desired for these mountains to move, whether it's traveling in a U-Haul, whether it's building a railroad through those things, these mountains don't move. You have to work your way around them. But God says, even if these mountains and hills may be moved, my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My loving kindness, my covenant with you, my compassion for you is so much more permanent than anything that you might think is permanent in this life. This is what God is telling his people. His covenant of peace will not be shaken. So what is this covenant of peace? The word peace here means completeness or wholeness. It can mean soundness or welfare or simply peace. Peace with man, peace with God, or peace with nations. What is this peace? What is this covenant of peace that God is talking about? Rod already stole my thunder this morning in the Sunday school opener. It's not necessarily the covenant of peace with other nations because you look in the world, there's not world peace yet, is there? Someday, Lord willing, there will be. When Christ comes back, there will be peace. It's not peace with other people, is there? Because God says, my covenant of peace will not be shaken. But God also says, Jesus says to his disciples, the world has hated me, they're going to hate you too. It doesn't sound like peace. He's not talking about peace between man and man. What's the only type of peace that's left? Peace with God. This covenant of peace with God is immovable. Because this covenant of peace with God doesn't rest on what you have done, doesn't rest on what I have done, but it rests on what Jesus Christ has done. 
God says again in Romans that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that finished work of Christ stands today. It is finished. It will not be removed. Though the mountains and the hills may tremble, though homes may be uprooted and leaved, left or moved, though you may be moved from your comfort zones, God's covenant of peace will not be removed from you. The work of Christ stands to this day. This covenant of peace is another act of God, an act that God has done to save you, to save me. It wasn't you or me that has done this act. It wasn't any other person in history, but it was God acting and God alone, once and for all dying so that every single sin that ever was and every single sin that ever will be would be forgiven in Jesus Christ. The mountains and the hills may shake, but this covenant of peace, the finished work of Jesus Christ, stands today, yesterday, and forever. It will not be moved. Our peace comes from what God has done for us doesn't come from what we have done. It doesn't come from our feelings, but it comes from who Christ is and what he has done. And again, this covenant of peace is an act which God has done. There are probably still people today who may want to put God on trial. Maybe it won't be a formal lawsuit like the one in 2007. There are still people who say, I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell. And they just leave it at that. But the reality is, God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves to hell. Look at all these acts of which God has done. God desires for every single one of us to be saved. He's given us his one and only son so that we wouldn't have to experience hell. Hell wasn't created for you and me. It was created for the devil and his angels. for The very ones who make hell on earth for us. That's who hell was made for. But yet people still end up going to hell because they reject these very acts of God, which he has done to save them. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the cross. We look at God's acts. We look at our own acts, and we look at our own consequences for our actions, and we blame God when the blame is left on ourselves. And we don't see the acts that God has done in order to save us. To the extent to which God has gone through, so that you can be saved, so that I could be forgiven. He disciplines us. It doesn't bring him joy to discipline us. It doesn't bring him joy to see us suffering and in pain. But he does it for our own good, so that we're no longer on this highway to hell, but that we realize our actions, that we realize that God's way is the best way. And he shows us his son. It didn't bring God a whole lot of warm fuzzies to see his son die on the cross, and it sure didn't bring Jesus warm fuzzies to die on the cross. But he did that for you and for me. And scripture says it brought Jesus joy, knowing that you and I would be removed from the highway of hell to be brought onto the straight and narrow path which Jesus takes us and guides us by the hand so that you and I can be saved. Yes, God is still acting today. But as we look around in the world around us and we see God's acting in history, don't forget to open up the word of God and look back to the acts that God has done, that he has revealed to you and to me to save each one of us. The love of God, as its song we just sang, says, were the whole oceans filled with ink, and were every man on earth a scribe, and were the skies a parchment, 
to write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. There's not enough time in the world. There's not enough time in eternity to write the love of God. There's not enough space in the sky to write the love of God for you. Yes, God acts, but he doesn't act to give us terroristic threats. He acts to save us. Let's bring this message of God's actions and history to all of those around us, to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the actions that you have done in the past, the actions that you have done to save us. Lord, yes, you discipline us to show us the errors of our ways, to show us, Lord, how not to live. We thank you for those times, even though those times may not be enjoyable. But Lord, we know that you have our best interests in mind. We thank you, God, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be saved. Jesus, thank you for bearing the penalties for my sins, for all the sins that I have ever done and all the sins that I ever will do. And not just me, Lord, but the sins of the whole world. Thank you for the forgiveness that you offer us. God, help us to live in your will, to live saved and to make disciples of all nations as we are going around from day to day in our jobs, in our homes, in our families, in our communities. Lord, help us to share the acts of God, the acts that you have done to save us and to save those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.